May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known upon the earth, your saving power among the na- all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. A missionary to Africa was asked once if he really liked what he was doing. And his response was shocking. Do I like this work? He said, no, my wife and I do not like dirt. We have reasonably refined sensibilities. We do not like crawling into vile huts through goat refuse. But is a man to do nothing for Christ he does not like? God pity him if not. Liking or disliking has nothing to do with it. We have orders to go and we go. Love constrains us. Have you done anything just because you love Jesus? If the only criteria were love for Jesus because of the way he has loved us, what would we be willing to do? So I believe that Psalm 67 is a call to action. It's always been God's plan that the nations hear the gospel. Sorry, I snorted just then, and that probably won't be good, but I'll probably be doing it regularly. So just, sorry, honey, I went off, I went off script again. And, and, and Greg, my son-in-law's shaking his head no too. I get it double when they're here visiting on the weekend, yeah. So it's a great psalm, and uh, it will be better than anything that I do up here. So <clears throat> what is the psalmist asking for? Verse 1, look at this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. So you might recognize this as part of the Aaronic benediction, which is in Numbers chapter 6, and I use it uh, frequently when we do the blessing. Um, It's a call for God to look favorably upon his people. Well, who doesn't want that? Don't we want God to bless us? We don't want hardship. And isn't this psalm proof that this is what God wants for us? He wants us to ask for blessing. And we pray for this all the time. God bless this endeavor or that endeavor. God help me to do well at this or to do well at that. God bless my family, bless my finances, bless my influence, bless everything. This is what we want, right? Is is it right to pray for these things? I don't think it's wrong for us to pray that God bless us. I don't think that's wrong. But I do think there's something deeper going on here. We've talked about this a lot. American Christianity has been deeply influenced by our culture. Um, Especially when we consider the idea of success. 
As Americans, I think we're obsessed with success. Uh, we want the best education so that we can get the best jobs, so that we can make the most money, so that we can enjoy the greatest comfort and have the most options in life. We have almost no category for suffering at all or for difficulty. Those are things to run from. Those are things to be avoided at all costs. And it's rampant with us as well. We're not that different from the culture. We want churches that are successful, churches with influence, churches that grow large, churches that are popular. And we want this in missions also. How much money do you think a missionary would be able to raise if they were unsuccessful? You gotta do a dog and pony show and show that you can raise, that you look like you have potential. Do you know how hard it is to write a prayer letter if you don't have some success stories to tell the people back home? See, the American way is that if you give some money, you need to have a bang for your buck. You need to show me that you're being successful with my money. Otherwise, I'm taking my money from you and I'm putting it somewhere else. I need success. This is the American way. We pay money, we expect a product. If we go to a restaurant and we pay money, we expect good service. Otherwise, no tip. If we, if we go to some other commodity, we pay money, we expect good service, and we'll be nasty about it in a nice way, of course, until we get what we want because, hey, I'm giving my money here. You know this is right, this is what, this is, I do it, we do it. This is how we work, that's the American way. And yet I wonder, is this really God's way? In a Christianity Today article, Eugene Peterson said this, among the apostles, the one absolutely stunning success was Judas. And the one thoroughly groveling failure was Peter. Judas was a success in the ways that most impress us. He was successful both financially and politically. He cleverly arranged to control the money of the apostolic band. He skillfully manipulated the political forces of the day to accomplish his goal. And Peter was a failure in ways that we most dread. He was impotent in a crisis and socially inept. At the arrest of Jesus, he collapsed, a hapless, blustering coward. In the most critical situations of his life with Jesus, the confession on the road to Caesarea Philippi and the vision on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said the most embarrassingly inappropriate things. He was not the companion we would want with us in time of danger, and he was not the kind of person we would feel comfortable with at a social occasion. Time, of course, has, re has reversed our judgments on the two men. Judas is now a byword for betrayal, and Peter is one of, most honored name, one of the most honored names in the church and in the world. Judas is a villain, Peter a saint, yet the world continues to chase after the successes of Judas financial wealth, and political power, and to defend itself against the failures of Peter, impotence and ineptness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the figure of the crucified invalidates all thought which takes success for its standard. <laughs> 
Do we understand what the gospel's all about? Humanly speaking, Jesus was a colossal failure. He died at 33 without actually having turned the world upside down. His disciples went into hiding. His band of men had been hit by an earthquake and they were devastated. <clears throat> but the way of God is different from our ways. So the psalmist here is asking God to bless him so that he can have success in a good life? I don't think so. Let's look at it again briefly. Verse one, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Let's pull that apart. May God be gracious to us. Gracious, may he show us his grace. May he show us mercy. May he forgive us in spite of our waywardness, in spite of the way we continually live to be successful. May he bless us to declare an object to be endued with special power. Give me power to believe in and live out your covenant promises. Give me power to know your glory. And the third phrase, make his, your face shine upon us. His face means presence. May your presence ever be with us. Shine upon us, take pleasure in us, and save us not for our name's sake, but for yours. Shine on us, look favorably on us. What's the point? Well, far from being a self-centered prayer for success in life, this is a prayer that God's very presence would inundate our lives that his mercy would forgive our waywardness, that his light would illuminate our path. But what is this good for? Why? Well, the psalmist has a specific reason he's asking this. Look at verse two. That your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. It's a far cry from make me successful, God. God, bless my life. God, get me out of this jam. Help this business deal to go through. Work out the details with the minimal amount of difficulty. This is actually, God, come with your presence to my life in such a way that people will see that there's a God in heaven. Order my life and my priorities in such a way that you loom large, I loom small. If it takes suffering, then let it be. If it takes failure, then let it be. If it takes brokenness, then let it be. If it takes confusion and difficulty to make your name large, then let it be. But use me and let me be a part of reaching the nations for your glory. That's what he's calling us to. There's so much here. Let's look at a couple of things. First, the nations are God's heart. Look at verse five, verse three, sorry. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. See, this is not optional for a Christian. World missions is crucial for every single Christian. It's about the nations praising him. If you're a follower of Christ at all, what's clear here is that this is what's on his mind. So we have two options. Either we will facilitate world missions through our prayers and our giving and through our personal interaction interaction and encouragement of missionaries, or we will go ourselves. Those are the two options. 
John Piper says everything else is disobedience. Either we will facilitate it with all that we are, or we go ourselves. So important is the work of world missions. See, God's not looking for superheroes. He's, he's not looking for the qualified. He's actually looking for the unqualified. But the unqualified that will seek his presence, that will soak in the gospel of grace, that will put themselves on the line for whatever he wants. Would you be willing to ask God if he might want to use you somewhere overseas? Would that be something on your heart? But it's not just overseas, of course. The U.S. is in a unique position in missions because the world is coming to our doorstep. Seems like by the thousands, <laughs> lately anyway. The world is coming to our doorstep. There's a statistic here, 100, there's a, almost 100 nationalities present in Greenville. Sometimes it's not easy to get to know people from other countries, but especially if they struggle with the language. But this is God's heart, this is our calling, this is an easy way to be in missions. Or maybe, maybe it's not even someone from another country. We have plenty of racial diversity in the U.S., and God's heart is for the nations to join together. That's why we do our declaration every week. It's a cry for God to make us a church made up of different races and peoples and cultures for the greatness of God's name. So we're to go, but, but number two, we're to go in weakness. But with the power of his presence. Paul said, I boasted my weaknesses. Why was he boasting in his weaknesses? He said, I resolved to know nothing among you except for Jesus and him crucified. The sign of the cross, Romans' worst punishment. There was no greater sign of weakness you would be nailed to a cross and you would slowly asphyxiate. To breathe, you would have to push up with your legs so that your lungs could fill with air. But at your feet, you'd been nailed in and they're bleeding and your hands are bleeding and you're bleeding everywhere, especially with Jesus who had been beaten. And as his body suffered blood loss, you become weaker and weaker, and eventually you can't push up anymore. This is most people, so they asphyxiate. It was a horrible way to die. Jesus died in weakness. He let them crucify him. But what the enemy miscalculated was that when his minions crucified the Lord of glory, thinking they had won some type of victory, in reality, they had driven a nail in the coffee, in the coffin of the enemy in his kingdom. They had rung the death knell of, of Satan and his minions. The crucifixion was the single greatest act in history because by it, Jesus took God's wrath for us. And at the same time, he took our sin to hell and he paid the penalty. Great weakness. Ultimate strength 
This is the story of the gospel. By the power of God the Father, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove that it was all true. See, this is the way of the cross. It is weakness that God uses for the furtherance of his kingdom. It is weakness that God uses to resurrect dead people. That's what we're talking about. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. He resurrects people. This is what he does. When we go, we have no power in ourselves. We have no power, but he works it through us. The American way is the way of power. It's the way of power. Christ was sown in weakness, but was resurrected with great power. This is the pattern. What does it mean to come in, in weakness? It means to count on persecution. So the cry of the psalmist is that God would, in, in verse 4, that God would rule the peoples justly. That he would bring his justice, that there would be justice in the world. Now here's the fact. When you bring justice into places of darkness, there will be great pushback. You can count on it. It won't be easy, and you won't be able to muster enough strength to get it done. You're not strong enough, but there will be pushback. I'm afraid of pushback. I don't want to go into the lion's den. I'm afraid of that. And yet when Peter was released from prison, he came to the church and what did they pray together? They prayed for boldness. Are we willing to pray for boldness? That we might be obliterated if necessary so that the gospel could go forward in the name of Jesus could be preached and known among the nations. This is what it takes. In his book, A Selfish Plan to Change the World, Justin Dillon talks about a missionary couple who had a lot of courage and they stood up against corruption. In the late 1800s, Leopold II, the king of Belgium, started colonizing the Congo, a land rich with natural resources such as rubber. At the same time, the demand for bicycle and car rubber was starting to spike. Within a few years' time, Leopold was enslaving millions of men and women and children through brutal armed force to do the labor-intensive work of harvesting the rubber. The pressure to fulfill the impossible rubber quotas fell on a brutal police force, the force publique, to prove that the bullets Leopold provided were being used to kill unproductive slave workers. Leopold required a severed hand or foot for every victim. So the soldiers stockpiled baskets of hands and feet to account for the bullets. It was a barbaric situation, but no one dared to rebel except a mild-mannered British missionary couple named John and Alice. Both felt a divine calling to this place to bring the love of Christ, but they also could not ignore the violence against people they loved. So Alice had a brilliant idea. She grabbed her Kodak brownie camera and started taking pictures documenting the atrocities. 
She captured images of right hands cut off by the force publique sentries. She documented mass graves. She filmed tribesmen shackled together. This young woman with no professional photography skills started collecting images in order to topple an evil king she had never met. Alice and John had no plan, strategy, certainty, or guarantee of success. In fact, her actions increased her chances of dying in the Congo. But news about the atrocities started to reach Europe. Churches, town halls, university lecture halls, parlors, halls of government. There wasn't a room that Alice wasn't willing to bring her magic lantern show to. The people who came to witness her images and stories were moved by this fearless woman. Her story spread quickly, making its way into the writings of Mark Twain. Political and social pressure started to build against the Mad King's maniacal exploits. King Leopold II would ultimately be responsible for the deaths of close to 10 million people, but his stranglehold of the people of Congo came to an end, and it all started with an unknown missionary and her cheap camera and a lot of courage. See, this is what it is to be sown in weakness, but resurrected in power. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, brothers, think not... Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. See, when we ask God to bless us, we ask him to show mercy on our waywardness and then to use us and then to use us however he wants to. And he will and God can use us right where we are. See, the gospel is for the unqualified who seek his presence and ask for his face to shine upon them so that they can have the courage to enter into darkness, into darkness, to shine the light of Christ. But the psalm doesn't end there. There's a promise. Verse 6. Then the land will yield its harvest, and God our God will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. See, the promise is that Jesus wins. The land will yield its harvest, and he will bless, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. That's what's going to happen. The cross dealt with our sin, the resurrection proved it, and it set in motion a power that cannot be thwarted. He will bring the powers of this world to their knees. Every knee will bow before Jesus Christ, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Will you be part of this worldwide movement? Or we can continue to pray that God bless our lives with success so that we can avoid suffering and we can enjoy our lives. So that all could have a good time at the end of the day. So we could reach our financial goals, our work goals, so that we could have a nice retirement and we could see our children and their children grow up 
and we could just enjoy being with them. Which one of these seems like it has more bang for the buck? One of them is so temporary. One of them is eternal. The choice couldn't be any more clear. The call of the kingdom is a call to radical Jesus power that only comes when we seek his face. When we humble ourselves, when we push ourselves out of the way and say, you come, when we declare that we can have, he can have full control of who we are, what we do, and the circumstances of our lives, when we ask him to shine the light of his presence on us, then we step out in faith and we watch him work. Philip Yancey, a great writer, recently toured a cemetery in Korea. It was a cemetery built to honor 145 missionaries in South Korea. And all of these missionaries obviously died in their adopted country. This is what he writes. Some of the gravestones date back more than 100 years. And the caretakers have added stainless steel plaques to recount the stories of the missionaries buried there. Some face persecution for leading protests against the brutal Japanese colonial rule. A couple with the Salvation Army began the long tradition of caring for Korean orphans. A scholarly Presbyterian contributed greatly to the Korean translation of the Bible. Two women pioneered education for girls by founding schools and ultimately a women's, uni women's university. Another American woman who came to Korea as a medical missionary developed Braille suitable for the Korean language and established a school for the blind. My favorite story was of S.F. Moore, who gave medical treatment to a butcher deathly ill with typhoid fever. The butcher survived and became a Christian, only to find that no church would admit him. Korea's rigid class system scorned butchers who they dealt with, uh, who had dealt with dead things such as meat and leather, and they called him the lowest social class. Moore supported a freedom movement to fight such discrimination and organized a butcher's church for outcasts and social underdogs. He died of typhoid fever at the age of 46. Each plaque spelled out hardships of the men and women buried there. Many of the missionaries also lost children buried in small graves beside them. Yet the fruit of their work lives on in schools, libraries, hospitals, and church buildings dotting the landscape of modern South Korea. To a nation steeped in hierarchy and dominated by its powerful neighbors, China and Japan, the men and women buried here brought a gospel message of justice, compassion, and transformation. In comparison with much of Asia, South Korea had been unusually receptive to the Christian message. 30% of South Koreans identify as Christians. I spoke in one impressive church with 65,000 members, yet it is less than one-tenth the size of Seoul's largest church. This is happening all, the, all over the world for those who are willing to step out in faith and say, Hap, what happened, come happen what may. Use me. Use me in your kingdom. Brothers and sisters, if we want to see this happen in our midst and in our country, we're going to need to leave the success syndrome behind. We're going to need to leave our rights behind. We're going to need to leave our self-strength behind because none of that is worth anything 
but we will need to take up the call of the kingdom. Jesus is using broken people that are desperate for him to bring about big things for the kingdom, for the glory of God. Are we willing to talk about these things with one another? Are we willing to urge one another to follow extraordinary callings? Are we willing to help the nations follow Jesus? That's really the gospel, and it changes everything. Let's pray.